This week on An Hour With Flair, I'm joined by a guy who sailed a laser, finished third at the Inlands in back-to-back years, had a best result at qualifier of third and was a strong wind specialist. He transitioned into the Finn in 2016 and had some great results last year, winning the Nationals and finishing seventh at the Junior Worlds. And he's still training full-time. He's going to talk about his training programme and how he went about going full-time. I'm, of course, talking about James Skulzuk. James, how are you? Good, thanks. Nice having me on Hour with Flower. How are you, Floz? I'm all right, I'm all right. It's uh, a January. We've just finished the second day racing of the America's Cup. Have you been watching it? Yeah, it's got to the uh, pointy end, really, wasn't it? The hard end when one of the teams was going home. And uh, unfortunately, it was American magic. Yeah, four years of training. It's just gone straight away. But it's part of sport, isn't it? And there can only be one winner. Move on, yeah. And you actually, with the, the Ineos guys, you actually sailed with you know a couple of them, Ben Cornish and uh, Giles Scott. Yeah, well, obviously, with all the Finn stuff... Uh, Quite a lot of the Ineos guys came through the Finn program, as you said. So, a bit of sailing with them when the Finn was going properly. Yeah. And we're going to start off this week with a quick sort of word association. So, I'm going to say a word, and you've got to say the first thing that comes into your head, okay? Okay, here we go. So, laser. Hiking. Finn. Pumping. Fitness. Oh, jeez. Fitness. Uh, cycling, because that's what I'm doing a lot of at the moment. What's the first gym equipment that you think of? First bit of gym equipment. Probably the rowing machine, because that's probably the only bit that we had in the flat in Weymouth. Yeah. Keel? Camping. Drift off. Mental battle. Windy weather. Uh, survival, <laughs> trying to get around the course. <laughs> Callum Dixon. Uh, housemate, roommate. Weymouth. Weymouth. Cliffs and back. Genoa. No, that was, yeah, light winds. Garda. Beautiful. Finally, the America's Cup. The dream. Ideal. A lot a lot you can take away from that. I think uh, we'll, we'll go on to a lot of what you sort of pulled up about there. First of all, laser, what was your fondest well your most memorable moment in a laser that you can remember well i think the most memorable bit has got to be the torquay qualifier jeez what year was that 2015 i think 2015 that's a long time ago now that is that is quite a long time ago the really windy one um absolute brutal brutal was it sunday sunday 
sailing where the wind just kept building and building. And uh, I think the last race was, that was definitely a survival survival race. Luckily, where I was towards the front of the fleet, I didn't really get hit that hard. Straight after the finish, the real front came through and the radials were hit quite bad, I think. And and the people at the back, like me and Callum Dixon, were we were having a fight down the last run in that race, and it was a question of who could capsize the least. It was he <laughs> would capsize, I would overtake him. I would capsize, he would overtake me. But that, that yeah. was an absolute brutal event, and great fun, great venue. Torquay is, and do you remember? I remember you telling me that you were wrapping the main sheet around your hand several times just to hang on to it. Yeah, it's just last couple of downwinds when it got proper breezy, but the main sheet is quite thin in the lasers. There's not much to hang on to. It's like wrapping it around your hand, like hanging on to it, just sort of sitting on the back corner praying and hoping for the best that the, the bow doesn't go in and uh, I can remember capsizing and then sitting on the boat being like hang on all I've got to do now is get to the the bottom mark and then round it and go towards the finish on a reach and I was like hang on how do I write this boat in such a way that I don't have to jive at the bottom mark because <laughs> that's just not going to happen in that breeze. So got the boat up, got to the lured mark, and there's about four or five people upside down swimming after their boats <laughs> and uh, just sort of pulled the sail in and reached towards the finish. That was, that was quite an interesting way how to finish in your race plan. I, I think it's great. I think it's a great part of racing, especially at the internationals. They they race you in that, and I think if more race officers had that philosophy of just you know getting people out there and racing, you, you learn these you know experiences and you know, have these great memories. And my first actual memory of you again was a windy event. Was the inlands in twenty fourteen where you finished third? Yeah, it was at that time when the inlands were always quite windy weren't they where was it I think it was at I think Rutland that year Grafham because they I think they changed I think where it, they were holding them around that sort of time yeah I think I believe it was Rutland that year but it was it was dominated by Jack and Henry Weverall finishing first and second in each race but you were sort of clear in third yeah I was sort of the the middle man straight after Jack and Henry and then in front of the rest of the fleet, it was pretty breezy, and it linked quite well to how I'd done quite a lot of my training in the laser, in the lakes of Buell Water, my one of my home clubs back in the day, and where I was quite heavy for the boat as well, I could just have to hold the power, hike hard, and go pretty well upwind. And for people that don't know you personally. At that time, you were, you were still about 6'4". Yeah. Pretty tall for a laser and struggling to keep weight down. And I think my first year in the standard, I was probably about 82, 83 kilos and then slowly moved up to probably around 92, 93 for my last year in the standard. 
So I always struggled to sail in the light winds and very much enjoyed the strong winds. And especially in a youth squad when you have people like Jack Aitken and Anthony Park, there's two ends of the spectrum in terms of weight for you. Yeah, the, the training was pretty tough. Really pushing myself. I knew I had to work on the light wind side of it, but so much of it, it was down to feel. And I think I was always moving quite late up into the next rig. So I moved quite late from the radial to the standard. So I never really built that feel in the light winds early on in my sailing career. I just always had the strong wind feel. So I think that's one area that I was really trying to work on and having some really good light wind specialists in the squads certainly helped. Well, the following year at the Inlands, you then finished third again and that was a complete opposite event. I wasn't at the event, I had a broken arm, but I remember seeing photos, seeing the updates and it looked about two knots worth of breeze. Yeah, Grafham, it was Grafham that year, super light winds, as you said. I think there was quite a lot of waiting around on shore. I can't remember, really. But, yeah, that, that light wind event, all the training had really started to pay off, especially in the light winds. And somehow managed to get a third. Who wouldn't have thought that looking at my previous experiences in the light winds. So, really happy with that. Yeah, and you beat some great sailors. Just beating, you know, off the podium with Sam Whaley, Joe Mullen, Ed Higson, Ollie Davenport and James Gray, all just within four points of you in third. Very close, but you managed to just squeeze past them all. Yeah, I think back then it was it was quite a big... Well, there's a lot of competition, a lot of good guys around. So if you made a mistake, you'd be outside the top ten maybe even outside the top 15 pretty quickly if you had a couple of bad races, put a couple of letters on the scoreboards. So I think racing back then, 2015, around that era, was actually really good for building your skills. I remember the youth squad being so big and so stacked worth of a lot of great sailors and you were part of that for a bit with James Grazie coach do you have any memories of a of a squad camp maybe that anything happened that was memorable? I think there was in Weymouth. So Weymouth has always got this reputation of being cold, windy and wet. And we had a week-long squad camp and it was absolutely freezing. We were smashing the ice out of the mask cup of the laser and the main sheets had all like frozen stiff so you're trying to like warm them up so you can fit them through the blocks and go sailing and we managed to go sailing for the whole week just putting on as many base layers and spray jackets and super warm tops as you could just to stay warm and then some of the other classes joined us towards the end of the week and it was starting to get a bit warmer well not can't really call it warm, warm because it was still only a couple of degrees, but <laughs> it felt tropical to us. And they were like, I think we uh, shouldn't go sailing, it's too cold. And we're, we're there, like, oh, you should have been here early on in the week. And I think that just really shows with the 
caliber of the people that were sailing at the time that you just do anything to go sailing and improve. I remember it being a time when you would, if, if it, whatever the conditions, you would turn up and rig the boat. If it was forty knots, if it was minus five, and it was sort of, you know, who who was going back off, sort of thing, because everyone had that massive ego where they were, you know, didn't want to back down in a way. Uh, yeah, it's just with every good people and competitive people, it was all just what can you do to make yourself better and sort of well known that time on the water and time practicing is probably the biggest factor in that equation to getting better. So we all knew that we had that weekend, we had that week, squad camp or whatever, and it's just sailing was the only thing that mattered. And the more sailing time you get on, the better the results will be in the end. Precisely. And moving forward into 2016 now, we... Another great event was at Weymouth again uh, and you finished third at that qualifier and it was sort of quite an up and down week. There was a few light wind races but also a few strong wind races and I remember the strong wind races on the first day. You got you won the first race and you got second in another race. I remember coming up to you on the second day and saying to you oh, what was working because back in the day I, I was really bad in the breeze as you as you know and I remember you saying I was just trying to get a lead at the windward mark and then hopefully nobody overtook me on the downwind yeah well I think that leads back to a bit of the weight I don't really want to blame it all on the weight but going downwind in a laser at 92 93 kilos isn't quickest but it can be done and uh hiking hard upwind but I, I remember you you're always pretty keen to learn always going around the top guys of the fleet asking what are they doing what would they recommend and i think that's pretty much the way to go it's a really good way of learning asking the top guys what they're thinking about what they're planning to do how they're going to approach the racing so I think that's definitely a key point to take away from anyone who's ask people that are better than you. They're always willing to talk about sailing because we all love sailing so much. I think it's the same in, you know, like you're saying, same in a lot of sports where if you actually talk to somebody about the sport they're doing, they're more than happy to, if, if they've got the time, more than happy just to spend a little time because, you know, they remember a time when they were in your position and, you know, I think the only way you can improve is by learning off the best or finding out the information from the best. So why not just go and ask them sort of thing? Yeah, that's precisely it, really. It's just it's the same with everything. Fitness-based, uh, sailing, skilled-based sports. Just surround yourself with people that are better than you and have got the mindset that, that you want and you'll so slowly adapt to it and improve quickly because of it. Precisely, and as well, another event in a laser. You, you, like we said, you were at uni for a bit, and you remember the the, nas- the uni nationals at Cardiff Bay when in twenty fifteen that you won. 
Yeah, so 2015, started uni at University of Surrey. First thing I'd done was find the sailing team and uh, signed up for the sailing team. And they're like, oh, we've got this fleet racing championships going on in Cardiff. Do you want to go? I was like, yeah, any any sort of racing I was down for. So I remember it was myself and Jeff Sherwood, who was another laser sailor back in the day. We put our lasers on my car, drove down to uh, Cardiff with the rest of the uni sailing team. And it was in Cardiff, pretty windy. What and I've heard about Cardiff is there's like dead sheep sometimes floating in in that bay. It's not a, it's not the most hygienic of location. Y- yeah, it's. I think where where it rains quite a lot, it all comes off the mountains, then goes into the the bay, and it can get a bit disgusting sometimes. And I remember. Everyone was getting ill on the second day, and oh, just the spray. It was quite windy. The spray was coming off, and quite a lot of people capsizing and swallowing the water. It was just making everyone ill. And on the way home, I was sort of like trying not to be sick and like trying to like race home back to uni before so I could get out of the car. <laughs> So it was a race of attrition more than anything, though. Yeah, the race sort of pretty much started like, as soon as the racing finished. Race and, to get back home. But you managed to win that. Yeah, I think that was. I think that was actually my first win, first event win. So learning some new skills at the front of the fleet and how to sort of protect the lead and how to keep your head. That was definitely a skill that was learned at that event and one that's very important to have. Especially moving forward and getting back to 2016, we we said about that qualifier and moving forward into the, the summer, we went out to the Under-21 Worlds in Kiel. I drove out with... Ed Higson and Matt Whitfield, but you actually took a different path and ends up chartering with Sail Coach. Yeah, so it was that year that I didn't qualify for the youth squad. So I had no coaching and I had no space on the trailer to get out to the event. So I had to find different ways of competing at the event, pretty much. So sail coach they they do a good package of you fly out you can charter a boat off them they they supply the accommodation the coaching and pretty much everything that's needed and yeah just took that path and from that you then that's when you sort of started to transition well you sort of got told by one of the coaches to sail a fin. Yeah, so he, Milos, was a fin sailor himself before he started coaching. And I always had this stereotype of the fin sailor that was 
pretty much unachievable though. It was like, oh, they have to be like seven foot tall and have to be like 110 kilos. Just like, there's no way that I could get there from the size that I was and the weight I was just, just from the stories that you hear in the boat park and the people that you see. And when I got there, he was like, oh, are you a laser sailor or a fin sailor? And I was like, I'm here for the laser sailing. He goes, ah, oh, I think you should think about moving into the fin. <laughs> so then I said, oh, I think I may be a bit small, not not the right size, may struggle to put the weight on. And he went, no, 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 I was a fin sailor. And if I could do it, you could do it. Because he was a bit smaller than me. And that was just pretty much where it, it started. He just gave me the confidence that could do it. And it's just a bit about fitness, weight, and it all slowly comes over time if you put your mind to it. I think when you look at the average height of a laser sailor, it's just over six foot, I'd say. And, you know, when you were in the lasers, only really me and you that were, uh, you know, the tall people in the fleet. I remember there's a photo of the, of at Kiel for the under 21 worlds and got all the, there's about 20 um, standard sailors and, you know, you're the tallest there by far. So (laughs) the fact that you said you're too small, I think was, that surprises me. Yeah, it's just that, the, the, the boat park rumours that you hear like oh yeah this guy done this and he's this heavy and it's just like well hang on babe is it is it out of my reach or is it not and it's just just sort of builds up and you get sort of a false picture so so you went into the fin and you're still at you need to sort of mixing that sailing the fin and you know doing doing your uni you were in the British under twenty three squad with you know several sailors, and as the you know the, the the process went on, there was less and less sailors in a way. And then when you finished uni in twenty eighteen, you decided to go full time. How how long was that in the planning for you to go full time after uni? Uh, it's not really something that I thought about. It was all. When I was at uni, it was all about got to get the degree, got to balance the time, got to think about life after sailing because you don't know how long sailing is going to last for. So it was never really in the forefront of your mind. And then it was just sort of like uni finished, you got the degree. The only option really was to go to Weymouth and continue sailing. So that's what I'd done. And I really think that the GAC Pindar under 23 fin squad helped because that was sort of the set up as the middle squad to help transition people from other classes such as the laser into the fin and try and get them into the British sailing team system. And initially there's several of you that were going full time at Weymouth, the likes of Callum Tweedle and Callum Dixon most notably you know staying with Callum Dixon and then only a couple months into you know you starting the train down at Weymouth the thing got dropped how how was that for you yeah it was a big shock really like it was all talked about 
there was all those rumours like, oh, the Finns not going to make it past next cycle, blah, blah. It's not that inclusive. It's too old. The design of the boat's too old, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, you put it to the back of your mind and you're like, you're here to train. It's still in the games for the foreseeable future. Let's just train as hard as you can. And then all of a sudden, when the World Sailing was making their decisions, you realise, hang on a minute, this could actually be true. It could actually be happening. And, yeah, when they announced that the fin was being dropped after you made such a big commitment to move down to Weymouth, you've got a flat, you spent all the money on the boats, and you've only just committed to your full-time sailing career, it's quite a big shock. And didn't really know what to do next. But you decided to carry on sailing the fin full-time, and somebody else I mentioned, Cameron Tweedle, actually decided to go back into a laser. Did that ever cross your mind? Not really. Um, even though the laser had really good racing and really competitive, I think my last couple of years in the laser, I was super struggling to keep the weight down. Well, a lot of time on the bike, trying to restrict food intake and still around that 90 kilo mark. So I didn't really think it was possible to then take the weight off from what I put on to get into the fin. Um, yeah, so I decided to stick with the fin stuff, the fin sailing, just because that's what I spent the last couple of years doing and I was really building up towards the next summer season. And I thought, future of sailing I want to go into the yacht side of it and keeping the muscle strength and keeping the fitness high is what would help me in the future and that would just be achieved in the fin but if I was then going to go back to the laser I'd have to lose a lot of strength and I just didn't really think that would be a smart option looking in the future so just getting back to that fitness, you were staying with Cam, uh, Callum Dixon in Weymouth. What was sort of the daily routine that you would go through? Of when I was fin sailing? Yeah, full-time. so when you were in Weymouth full-time. Yeah, so he had a rowing machine that we had in the flat, so that was very useful. So I'd wake up in the morning, have some breakfast, get a decent rowing then we would go sailing around lunchtime depending on the condition was a factor of like how long we would go sailing but some of the sessions when you well when you've joined us a couple of times flower i remember those like three hour sessions past the cliffs and uh and then we'd come back off the water have some downtime recover maybe fix some stuff on the boat and then then go to the gym in the evening. That was pretty much a daily routine for us. Five days on, two days off, had the weekend off. It was a bit of a luxury. And, you know, doing those three sessions a day, you actually stuck to it. It was 
very you know you're very structured in your routine and I like you said I was there for a few times you know going out with Cameron Tweedle in in lasers and I just remember those days when it was so cold that you have every single rabbit you'd stop and then have to you know do some shadow boxing do press-ups do anything just to keep warm and the motivation for you and uh, Callum just to be out every day was something else really yeah I think when you've made that commitment to move down to Weymouth and it's the financial it's the time commitment it's like I think you've really just got to put everything into it and that's what we done really we had the motivation for the summer events coming up because the fin was still in for 2020 at that time so there was still all the good guys training and going for it it was just that it wouldn't be in for 2024 that the younger guys like myself and Callum and Cameron that you were talking about wouldn't be able to go for and I, I remember sort of you you know still highly motivated us to get the best results you could and going into that year there's, there's a few sort of memories I have which I remember road tripping down to Palamos for the Christmas race and the three of us tried to try to learn Spanish which I I don't think it went entirely to plan personally but no, it went nowhere near to plan, did it? <laughs> no, but... You had, these, you had these CDs that we were playing <laughs> in the car, and you're like, oh, got these CDs. We can learn how to uh, speak Spanish. It's like, flower, we've only got like an hour left in the journey. <laughs> so we were trying to learn a bit of Spanish, and I think like the only stuff we learned was, is it possible? <laughs> and a few other, a few other sort phrases to go with it yeah it was it wasn't sort of as constructive and in the summer the the best memory i've got is in genoa it was such a light wind event and it was day three the lasers had come in and i think we had been out and so i I don't think we got a race in i remember coming in seeing you had already, you know, got changed. And I was like, oh, how did your race go? And you turned around and be like, Flower, we haven't even been on the water yet. Yeah, that was a really tricky event for the race committee and all the sailors. Just the wind just wasn't playing ball, was it? And you need some wind to go sailing. And when there's absolutely nothing, there's no point launching and wasting your time just a shame that it took three days for us to even go sailing and yeah. on the lead it was, up it was really good that the clubhouse it wasn't really a clubhouse but it was like inside this sort of exhibition centre so all the boats on the boat park were like inside this massive building so you, you didn't really have to fully derig your boat every time you could leave everything out it was quite a good good event for the shore side of it I thought I, I thought that the shore side was really good where you could literally for me you know bring your laser up put it into the, the hangar and then unclip the clue and just leave it like that 
It was mm. so easy in that sense. And after that, you then went to the Europeans. You were actually leading a race at one point at the senior Europeans. How did that feel? Yeah, <laughs> felt good, felt quick. <laughs> Apart from you turn around the uh, windward mark and I was like, oh, he's pumping on, he's pumping off. Well, I don't know, do I risk it? <laughs> and then luckily, as soon as I got pretty much close to the mark, the the pumping flag went up. So I was like, oh, at least I know we're pumping now. But <laughs> then you've got the best guys in the world that are literally a couple of metres behind you and just absolutely roll past you like you're standing still and you're like oh that's a bit of a reality check well a lot of those guys you know moving forward on to the america's cup racing right now was that sort of a yeah. moment that you were sort of like okay uh, that's something i want to do after the fin i think because it's, it's part of one of the big three really i think you've got the olympics you've got the volvo ocean race now the the ocean race and the america's cup so i think when you put your mind towards one goal of going to the olympics for such a long time i think just picking one of the other two would be a good goal to have and i think that's definitely one of my goals that i would like to do and i'm working hard to achieve at the moment and last thing about the fin before we move on to sort of what you're doing now is James Haddon was your coach at the time, which we'll yeah. have on the podcast in a few weeks' time. Oh, is he coming on? Yeah, that, that's that's the plan. We've got Spoilers. it scheduled. Spoilers. <laughs> and I remember you telling me about a time in, in Lake Garda. You launched from, was it um, Campione? Yeah, yeah. We based ourselves in Campione for three weeks I think it was a long time out in Garda it was right in between the Europeans the Finn Europeans of 2019 and the Finn Nationals so based ourselves in Garda and had some absolutely fantastic time sailing probably one of the most memorable points is what I believe you were alluding to was we went sailing and most people will know that if you don't, the, the wind switches from the morning and afternoon because like, there's a thermal effect and a funneling through the mountains there. So you can go downwind one way in the morning and then in the afternoon when the wind switches round, you can then go downwind back. So we launched, went to Robert Scheidt's coaches restaurant i believe that's correct the wonderful time there he sort of spoiled us we had lots of food and moored the boats outside just dropped the sails anchored them on the the side got the rib in and then we are, i don't know how many kilometers away it was but i think it was along the lines of 20k maybe i think we recorded was downwind back to Riva, the top end of the lake, and that was an absolute brutal session of 15, 20 knots downwind in the fin, 10 minutes on, maybe 20 minutes on, then a short rest, pumping all the way. Absolutely brutal, really showing how 
much fitness you really need to sail one of the boats. And we got to Riva, finally thought that we were finished because that was the plan, get all the way to Riva and then tow back. Myself and Callum dropped the sails, start rolling them up, getting ready for the tow. And James Haddon comes along and he's like, boy, I haven't told you to uh, drop the sails down. This session hasn't finished yet. We're going back upwind. <laughs> and we're just broken in the boat. Just like, <laughs> we've been downwind at max heart rate for the last like three hours. We're out of food, we're out of water. <laughs> and he's like, no, we're doing a couple more rabbits upwind. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a brutal session. Uh, James Hannon's great coach, and he's he's done a lot in. He's currently doing the radio youth squad as well as the the kite surfing, and he's coached I think basically every class possible. It seems like. But moving forward onto this year, you were out in the Caribbean last winter yacht racing. So you went basically after the fin. You went to the Caribbean. Is that right? Yeah. So I finished in July of 2019 um, the fin sailing because that was the last event of the the summer so then I really hung up my boots after that event and focused on the yacht sailing managed to get a boat for the fast net the 600 mile offshore race uh, that didn't really go too well the we had a couple of boat breakages and people got ill on board. So we had to retire and limp back to Falmer for that. And then it was towards the end of the, the sailing season. So it was quite hard to find a, a boat to do a couple of races on in the Solent for the rest of the season. So I was sort of looking online at places where to go and speaking to a couple of people. And they were all like, the Caribbean's, place to go I was like oh that sounds nice spent some time out in the Caribbean and uh, got speaking to a few people put my name out and managed to find a boat that was looking for some sailors out in the Caribbean liquid they were boat liquid and flew out there early 2020 and planned to do the whole Caribbean season until May out there for the first half of 2020 season but things suddenly took a quick change and I remember at the time sort of when stuff changed with the coronavirus and everything you were still out in the Caribbean whilst the UK was going into lockdown yeah so sort of a bit shielded out there really because never really hit the Caribbean. They had like one or two cases later on um, where we were sailing so much and we weren't really watching the news and we weren't really paying attention. So we knew knew it was happening, but we didn't really know the severity of it, as I think most people didn't. So it was only really when England was threatening to go into lockdown and parents were like you think you should come home borders are closing all that sort of stuff and that was when I really took it seriously and I think searching for flights to get home everyone was doing the same sort of thing so flights were quite expensive and few and far between and I think 
think it was the last flight out or the second last flight out before the airport closed in Antigua. So that was pretty close call. So it was a rush to get back to the UK. And then when you were here, it was sort of your mindset. I was, you know, talking to you on the phone and you were sort of, well, I'll just get my fitness as good as possible. And what was sort of that? Would you just go back to that structure you're using again at Weymouth? I think it comes back to when you've been working towards a goal for so long, you, you sort of plan your day, you plan everything you do. For the, the whole year, you pretty much know what you'll be doing for that whole year, when you'll be doing it. And just didn't really want to change. I always knew that fitness would be a big sort of side of it. So just got home and that was the only really thing to do was to smash out a lot of Ks on the bike. Now, one of your sort of workouts on the rowing machine was one minute on, one minute off. When you got back home, you didn't have the rowing machine because Callum was in London. And what was sort of, what was going through your mind? Okay, I've got to do one minute on, one minute off of on the rowing machine, but I don't have a rowing machine. What did you come up with? Oh, yeah, that was, uh, I didn't have a bike at the time either. So I was just pretty much in lockdown with nothing really. And as you said, one minute on, one minute off was a pretty staple of mine. So I came up with a beautiful but horrible idea of doing one minute on, one minute off of burpees for about 20 times. That was that was a big shock to the system. And but I think that just shows that for people out there that uh, don't know what to do fitness-wise, who might not have the equipment, there's stuff outside the box you can do, like burpees is just a body weight exercise. And what are the other sort of things in that, those initial days when you didn't have any equipment that you were doing? Uh, well, I had, a, I had a few weights and a... I didn't really have anything. I mean, I didn't have nothing. So I had a few weights and a small barbell so I could throw some light weights around and do some basic core core strength, body weight stuff. Uh, I quickly went to buy some resistance bands. That really helped with the lockdown training. Uh, got a bike as well. And that, and then just with a few extra things, you can then do about 90% of the training that you would normally do in a gym. And you're one of the hardest people that I know, but I think in lockdown, you've probably been the hardest working person at all. I think it'd be very hard, you know, put against. And each day, what keeps you motivated each day just to keep going? <laughs> Tough one, really, isn't it? Just to know, just I think not doing anything is pretty boring, isn't it? So just doing something is better than doing nothing. And also the motivation of one day it could lead to something, one day it could get you on a professional boat when 
there's then there's events starting again. I think it's just a really good thing to have on your sailing CV and in your armory of things that you can use. Just having the high level of fitness, high strength, high motivation. I I know for myself it's been quite difficult motivation wise when you haven't got an event coming up to focus on but I suppose those sort of little you know those little goals those little focus points that you've been working on through this whole year and what's amazing to me is when the gym's reopened for me down here you know I was able to go to the gym but you actually didn't go to the gym at all you just kept training at home to you know safeguard your family and yourself and then like you said to begin with you didn't have a bike but then you got a bike and now you're doing very structured training on the bike through the winter yeah i think the structured training's really helped just because i've got that diary of i'm going to do this sort of session on that day i'm going to do that session the day after then i'm going to have a rest day here and then so i sort of know what i'll be doing for the next couple of months really or that's what it was so you always had the motivation it's a nice little tick box like yep completed that done that well now let's move on and then when you finish a couple of weeks of training you can do some testing and you're like well i've improved motivation's high again because you know it's working uh but then i think that i didn't really have that when i was riding outside at the start I got a phone call from Callum that I'd done a lot of the fin sailing with and he moved to rowing and they come up with a stupid idea <laughs> to uh, cycle from John O'Groats to Land's End and that really put the motivation up for a couple of months for the training for that. I think that's... We were planning to do... 1,000 miles, over 1,000 miles and hit quite a lot of the national parks and quite a lot of the top 100 climbs in England that are along the way. So that was... Now, let's, let's sum it up. Yeah. You, you thought the idea would be great if on this journey you can make it the most epic uh, John O'Groats to Land's End as you can make not the quickest not the shortest you thought let's make it the most difficult the, you know have all the big climbs and I think I think that was a great idea personally because you end up going to some great places and that most people wouldn't do in that journey yeah I think if you do the standard route it's about 800 miles then we were like we should just make it a round number, really, shouldn't we? Like, let's, let's, let's do a 1,000 miles. That's that's the plan. Then we're, like, going through Scotland. You're like, oh, you got you got to do some of the big climbs in Scotland, see all the scenery. Then you come out and you're, like, pretty close to the Lake District. It'll be rude not to go through the Lake District and up, up some of the climbs there. Then it was, like, Yorkshire Dales are pretty close. You're like, oh, yeah. Let's just ride the length of the Yorkshire Dales, then the Peak District, go into Wales, do a couple of climbs around the Brecon Beacons, come over, get back into England, head towards Exeter and then do Dartmoor. And then 
slog it to the finish. I, I remember so you... We definitely added a lot. I remember there was a few sort of bike breakages and unfortunately Callum had to pull out, but by the time you got down to the West Country, you were up near Bristol, weren't you? And you, you, I remember you phoned me saying, the plan for tomorrow is to get to uh, Land's End. And I was like, why, why don't you just cycle down to mine, stay the night at my house in Torquay, and then, you know, do the, the final journey and, you know, you'll be nice and fresh and you're like, we just want to finish it now. And you chose the most brutal day to finish it. Going up Haytor, which nobody knows Haytor, it's on, on the moors. And it's about you know, a 20-minute climb if you're, if you're fast. And with all the gear you had on, it was closer to half an hour. And by the top, do you remember those biblical scenes of 40 knots and, you know, the rain was horizontal. It was brutal. I don't think we chose that day, Flower. I think, <laughs> I think it just happened to be a storm was coming through and we were there at that point. But we were nine days in, ten days in, if I remember rightly, and we were just... We were camping because quite a lot of all the all the accommodations were closed. So we were, had a bivy bag and a sleeping bag and we were just sort of camping in, in a field on the side of the road, in a bush, wherever we could find. We were just sort of wanting to get it over. So we was like, I think it's doable to do it in one day. And we gave it a good shot. Yeah, you gave it a real good shot. It was about 200 miles, wasn't it? close about 170 I think it would have been yeah. I think we just managed to break the 160 barrier before I think it was like 10 o'clock at night and it was pitch black and <laughs> pretty much bonked to be fair so we decided to stay in a field a couple miles out from Land's End just so when we arrived there in the morning around lunchtime maybe we were fresh and we could actually enjoy the moment rather than just rock up and collapse and go i'm dead now <laughs> yeah especially arriving at midnight you wouldn't have been able to take any photos at the, at the sign and that but what to, for the people that are listening to this and sort of thinking okay i want to put something more structured in my training so when events are back on when i can get back sailing regularly what would you say to them to try and plan their... If they if they don't know how to start, what would you say is the best way? Uh, I definitely think the amount of time that you can get training is a big factor. If you can get more time training in, it's definitely worth heaps. But you've got to definitely split, make make your easy rides easy your easy sessions easy and then your hard sessions really hard maybe two maybe three proper hard interval sessions a week and then the rest just easy easy pace where you can just speak to a friend that sort of pace so sort of not making every session really difficult but having yeah. a few of those in a week but then the other times having them proper easy and chilled out yeah precisely just because you can't go 100% all the time otherwise you'll just burn out and hate it and then stop 
And and for those that are in similar position to you, that they're at home, they're you know maybe don't have a you know, a bike or anything like that. What would you say to them that are that literally have no equipment? Find something. Just I think if you if you look hard enough, you will be able to find something that you could running. We overlook running. Running's easy to do, isn't it? You just go outside and you can run. Um, definitely, you can if you want it hard enough. If you want it, you'll definitely be able to find something to do. You've actually started doing some running most recently in preparation for when you go to the Caribbean. If that goes ahead this year, that it's something oh, you can no. do with no uh, equipment. But you've experienced some difficulties to begin with with ro- uh, running, say. And what would you say is the the biggest difference with those people that, when you started running for fitness wise, what would you say is the most difficult part about starting it? I think, as a big guy, quite heavy and tall, it really put quite a lot of shock through the the muscles and the the legs that wasn't you don't really experience that on the bike because it's low impact and then running's high impact so that was the biggest shock uh really struggled to build it up slowly that was that was definitely the mistake i made i sort of jumped in wanting it all straight away but should have definitely built it up slower and the when i realized that and started building it up slower definitely really helped and i remember when when you said that is i remember with myself is sometimes you you go okay i want to do something really big but actually it's building up to it so i think sometimes for people if you just go out and do a 1k run okay it's not anything to write home about but you can build yourself up and in in the end it'll actually you know keep your motivation there because you won't have those massive high and low points as much if you just build it up gradually yeah because you you experienced that at the beginning of summer really didn't you because that's when you started running and trying to get into triathlons if i remember right yeah so you just hit that learning curve before me and (laughs) i figured it out the hard way as well yeah i know we've learned from our mistakes yeah (laughs) for sure and sort of I think the biggest thing is with any sort of I think at the moment when there's not much on and especially for laser sailing where it's so important for fitness is if you can do something each day even if it's small by the time events are back on you'll be in a better position than you were if you didn't put that work in and you know you might not be sailing every day but if you're even in light winds I think if you're if you're fit in the light winds, your brain will respond quicker. It will everything in your body will work better, and you will be sort of more balanced in the boat. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely think that sailing is not really a full physical sport as such, because you've still got all the technique and skill involved. But the main thing that I thought that the fitness brought to the table was just the amount of time that you then can train so if you are super fit you can allow 
three-hour days for a whole week, multiple times. But then if you're not that fit, then you sort of burn out and lose energy quite quickly. Productive training on the water may only be one hour or an hour and a half. So you are losing a lot of time that is productive on the water. And I think, as we spoke about earlier, productive time on the water is king for sailing. I remember something else you actually told me, I think last year or something, is that if your fitness is is good in those situations where you're rounding a mark and there's say five six boats if you're the fittest out of those five six boats you'll more than likely be the first out of those five six boats but then if you're the least fit most likely you'll be the last out of those five six boats so i think it's those marginal gains that if you can keep your fitness on top especially in these you know times when you know all in lockdown you can come back stronger yeah, marginal gains is where it is all Team Sky mantra coming through, isn't it? It's just because if you're going for a cross, it doesn't matter if you're crossing by a centimetre or two centimetres. It's just you just need to cross. And yeah. if, you, if you're if you not, if you can't cross as such, you're ducking a whole boat. And by ducking that one boat might mean you're going to have to then duck another couple of boats. So... Just marginal gains do add up. Precisely. Just summing up, what would you say is the biggest thing you learnt from laser sailing that you would pass on to other people? I think it's definitely the feel of the boat. I think if you can really nail in the, the feel of the boat, strong winds, light winds, medium winds, if you can feel when the boat's driving, if you can feel when it hasn't quite got enough power just maybe a few things you can change to get that i think that's a really big thing just knowing when the boat's going fast and knowing what to do to make it go fast i think that's the biggest thing that laser sailing has taught you and it's transferable to all other boats i've learned as well it's the same with the fin the the feel that you get with the laser is the same basic feels that you get in the fin it's the same basic feels that you get with the yacht sailing so it's really a good skill to have for your future sailing life precisely i think a lot of people can take away stuff from this podcast that you've talked about and it's been great to talk to you so thanks james and best of luck with your you know endeavors in the future with that yacht racing and hopefully might even see you on the america's cup in a few years time hopefully that's the goal dream big that's it for this week with an hour of flower if you haven't already make sure you you know check out the other podcast there's been some great ones recently covering a wide range of the different sailors we've got in the fleet and there's still going to be stuff coming out each week so make sure you stay tuned and up to date and stay listening for the the future ones but thanks again to james and that's it for this week for an hour of flower goodbye bye